Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining in to our podcast with Spirituality Adventures. Today, I'm with Michael Brooks, and Michael Brooks has been a friend for over 10 years. We met several years ago when we first started working in the Urban Corps together with Convoy of Hope. And so I've come to appreciate Michael. Uh, He's served as pastor in Kansas City for 20 years at Zion Grove Baptist Church, now Oasis Church. And he served on the city council from, I think, 2011, 2014. And he continues to pastor Oasis Church. So thank you, Michael, for being here today. Uh, Fred, thanks for the invitation. It's it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship. No doubt. So uh, I am talking right now about recovery, and certainly my journey in the last couple of years has been a journey of recovery, Mm -hmm. and people uh, are tuning in right now, kind of hearing you share with me and have a conversation with me about recovery, and the reason why I wanted to invite you, first of all, I wanted to have a pastor come in and talk about recovery, but but. The other big thing is, you know, I knew that you had worked in recovery right. for years. Mm-hmm. So why don't you kind of tell us your, give us a, just some background. Some people don't okay. know you. Give sure. us some background of you know where you grew up and how you, sure. how you came to recovery work, okay. and then maybe even into your pastor work that okay. kind of thing. Well, how much time do we have? Yeah, so, yeah, right. You know, well, so that's um, the two-hour question. I was born and raised right here in Kansas City. Uh, went to Central High School. Uh, graduated from there in 1980. And um, but the year before I graduated, the summer before my senior year, I actually got injured playing basketball. And basketball was going to be my way out. I was expecting to get a college scholarship and you know, right off in the sunset, become an NBA player and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I really think I was supposed to be Michael Jordan. God took that gift. <laughs> I was so messed up. He took the gift and gave it to to Michael Jordan. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. There so, you go. so. Um, um, but anyway, the the depression and anxiety around not getting a scholarship and not playing basketball my senior year kind of drove me into drinking and drugging. <clears throat> and so that's kind of where I was for about a year and a half before I decided to uh, join the Air Force. And joining the Air Force was just a fluke. I was on the bus driving by a uh, recruiting station and saw the sign. I said, let me just go in here and see what they're talking about. Because I really wanted to get out of Kansas City. I just see another way out. College again was going to be my way out of Kansas City. So I stopped in, talked to the recruiter. By the time I left, I had already signed on the dotted line, delayed enlistment program. And this was probably December. And so I was de- I was delayed until uh, about May of 1982. And so May 1982, I left here, joined the Air Force, and uh, was in the Air Force from 1982 to 1992. Okay. And uh, so, but while in the Air Force, um, kept... I had to stop doing the drugs, but just kept drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, turned 21 while I was there, and so the day I turned 21, uh, I don't remember it very well. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember driving to the package store to get whatever I was going to drink, yeah. and the rest of the day is is a blur. Um, but at the same time, was still being pushed to kind of get back into the church. Um, I was raised in the church, born and raised in the church, was in the church all my life but never really had a personal relationship with God. <clears throat> and that's kind of where this the addiction thing comes from, uh, the change from addiction, recovery comes from. 
Um, and when it comes to spirituality, pushing more for people to have a personal relationship with God rather than having a relationship with the church. And so that's the, the big, broad picture. Um, but I was in the Air Force, um, was in Florida from 1982 to about 1984, and then got orders to go to Alaska. And uh, didn't know anything about Alaska. Heard a whole bunch of horror stories about bears <laughs> eating you up and all. Right. <laughs> you know? Uh, had a really nice car and sold my car because people said the car wasn't going to last. And then when I got there, the guy that picked me up from the airport was in just the raggediest car I've ever seen. I said, man, I sold my car. <laughs> I could have I just kept my car. But anyway, got there. Um, basketball was still my thing, so I still got back into basketball. Played a couple of base teams and, and uh, intramural teams in the job. Won a couple of championships, so God was like, okay, I'm going to let you win these championships so you can get that out of your system because I got some, some better plans for you. Okay. And, uh, and sure enough, um, one, that one of my best friends kept inviting me to church. Every Sunday he would invite me to church, and so I just I was never feeling it because I was going to the club Friday and Saturday. I worked Monday through Friday, and I partied hard Friday, Saturday. Right. And um, so I just wasn't feeling But one, and I, I'm not even sure what it was, but one Sunday um, – I told him I'm going with you this week. And so we went to church that Sunday. Um, and I'll tell you the truth, it wasn't so much this great spiritual experience. Um, I promised him I was going to go. And so I promised God, okay, I'm going to go to the club one more time. And then we're going to try this changing your life thing. <laughs> so, so I went to the club. And, but when I went to church that Sunday, I prom- uh, it's, it's not even a joke. Um, I did not join because of the spiritual experience. I joined because I looked up in the choir and some of the same people that was in the club Saturday night was in the choir. <laughs> and I thought, well, this must be the church to be. You can go to the club Saturday and sing in the choir on Sunday. Oh, this is <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's that's my story. And and uh but once I got in there, they had a basketball team as well. And this would really change things. Uh in order to play on the basketball team with the church, you had to attend Bible study. Oh wow. Okay. And so uh I wanted to play basketball. And but we had to be at Bible study Wednesday night. That was that started this journey of actually learning the Bible and becoming a disciple. And so yeah. that's what changed my life. Um, just being there and playing basketball. So basketball still did save my life. It just wasn't, you know, in a Division One college <laughs> college right. thing. So started playing basketball. Um, started going to Bible study, and I remember like yesterday we were studying the Book of Proverbs, one series, and then the Book of Revelation. Two two great books to study, <laughs> and uh, so um, when I got there, also just always felt even before I left Kansas City, I always felt like God was calling me to the ministry. And uh, but so joining like, the Air Force was also like running from the time you were a kid. You yeah, felt no, probably a teenager, or? probably around sixteen, seventeen, around what? the same time I got hurt. What um, was? Like, well, how did that it was transpire? Just, was it um, just a thought? It was, or it was, was it? just, whenever I, I I would get in trouble, I still always knew I needed to pray. Okay. And so there was a couple of situations where, and one really prominent one, um, I had a girlfriend whose grandmother stayed with her. <clears throat> and um, whenever she wasn't there, you know, I would still just sit there and talk to her grandmother on the porch. I always had this affinity to talk to old people about life and what was going on and so um we broke up but in the midst of the breakup uh maybe about a year or so later she gave me a call because she knew how close i was to her grandmother and said uh grandma was in the hospital they don't expect her to make it so if you want to see her again you may want to uh go up to the hospital and see her so sure enough i went up to the hospital she was in icu laying there uh hooked up to machines and she didn't make it um and my my theological position back then was when people die, 
now they in heaven watching you. And she thought I was this great kid, this great dude that needed to marry her granddaughter. And I was like, man, now she going to know I'm drinking, I'm smoking. And I'm, right. <laughs> I was like, so I need to change some stuff. It's that so, great cloud of witness so, surrounding oh God, us. Yeah, so even <laughs> at a young age, I understood that, that if people died, they're now watching everything you do. And so um, that that night after I went to the wake, uh, I was walking down the street on 37th and Benton and had a bag of dope in my pocket. And I opened it up and just poured it out. And that was the beginning of this change. And so that night I was praying, and it's just like I'm sitting here talking to you. Voice just said, I want you to preach. Mm. I was like, hey, ain't nowhere in the world you talking to me. <laughs> you want me to preach? And I thought, all these people that know me and know what I've been doing, how in the world am I going to preach to these folks? And so um, yeah. so the joining the Air Force really was running from that as well. And because yeah. I wanted to get as far away from that voice as I possibly could. Uh, didn't know that you just can't run from the voice of God, but that was my theology. I'm like, well, yeah. if you're calling me in Kansas City, I'll just move somewhere else. But I got to Alaska once I joined the church, um, still praying about what direction I was going to take. I was probably 22 at the time, okay, still young and not figuring, trying to figure life out. Um, and that same voice, I told you I want you to preach. Well, at the time, uh, in January of that year, before I went to Alaska, the current pastor had actually passed away. So when I got there, they didn't have a pastor. So all the associates were like just taking turns preaching. So when he told me you want to be preach again, I said, well, I can't say who's going to be my leader. We don't have no pastor. So you can't be telling me to preach now without a leader. Well, they went to a pastoral search committee and had all these candidates come in. And they ended up calling Carl Johnson. Carl Johnson is the son of A.L. Johnson. A.L. Johnson is the man who pastored Zion Grove for 37 years before he retired. And so, and I knew nothing about any church life in Kansas City. So all the past, Hartsfield and all the guys that were big preachers, I didn't know any of them when I left. Uh, but they ended up calling him, a guy from Kansas City, to be the pastor all the way up in Alaska. Wow. Interesting. And, uh, and the way the military goes is people end up socializing with people from the same area. So mm. like people from the West Coast hang out with people from the West Coast, people from the East Coast hang out. So that's kind of how you make your friends. You hang out with people who you think may have something similar. So him coming from Kansas City to Alaska, we just hit it off instantly. Interesting. And when yeah. I told him um, huh. what I felt, he said, and I told him, I said, look, I really think God's called me to preach, but I'll be okay with just being a deacon right now. Just just let me, just let me be a deacon and kind of matric. He said, no, if God calls you to preach, then that's what you need to be doing. It blew me out the water. And probably within 60 days, he is scheduled for me to preach my first initial service. Wow. Interesting. So like... Very little Bible oh, no, background, I, very no, little. You know, well, right? he knew this. He knew that I had been raised in church, and he knew my pastor from Kansas City. So he said the only thing he needed to do was call my former pastor and find out what he thought about me. Okay. And he said his he gave me some raving reviews. He said I was always one of the best kids in huh. In the church. Who, who was that? Uh, he was uh, R.B. Poe, Robert B. Poe. He was pastor of Canaan, which is now Canaan Worship Center, where Tony Cobbins is the pastor. Right, right. Uh, well, when he retired, they called Tony Cobbins. And so he had been the pastor there probably, oh, 40-something years, okay. maybe. Um, but he was my pastor all the way through yeah. life. And so um, even and, and actually, even after I started preaching, I came back. This is the other kind of offshoot from the story. Once I started preaching, I came back to visit Kansas City and went to church, of course. And I'm sitting in the pulpit just waiting for the service to get started. 
And he leans over in the middle of the service and says, you preaching this morning. I was like, what? <laughs> you you got to be kidding me, right? He said, no, you get ready because you preaching wow. this morning. That was about, you're talking about being thrown into the fire. Right. Uh, so from that point on, I learned to always be ready because you never know. So Have it was, one in it the was hopper. a hard lesson, but it was a lesson. And I can't tell you what I preached. I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't tell you what I preached. So I got, so got back into church. Uh, at the time, I knew I needed to stop drinking and and every now and then was still smoking marijuana. But once I got back in the church, all that stuff just kind of stopped. So so when it comes to recovery, I understand the twelve step program and all that stuff, but I also understand that people's relationship with God is really what changes them. Um and however you choose to do that is mm-hmm. up to you. What worked for me was working on my personal relationship with God. And mm-hmm. nobody taught me that. I just kind of knew. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that kind of also pushed me to do that was they were always saying, okay, you got you to gotta get your own Bible. Well, I went to the Bible bookstore and, and looked at the prices of the Bible. And back then, it's like, you know, early 80s. So right. $30, $40 for a book was like major to me. So I was like, I'm not spending $40 on a book I ain't going to read. So the fact I spent $40 on a book just said, I, I'm reading this book because if I'm spending this kind of money. Right. Yeah. But I, I just started reading, just started searching, and just started looking. And um, that was 1984, um, January, July of 84. And so um, that's where I started kind of learning more and, and, and searching for more. And so that's, that kind of started that journey. Also, while I was in the military, I had a job that I really didn't want. When I joined, I told them I wanted to get into management. Well, and I, I, had, I didn't know what inventory management was. But inventory management is warehouse work. So the management I was talking about, I want to be in office managing stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so they kind of tricked me on the management piece. So, okay. so uh, when I got to Alaska, uh, I had done enough time in that job to where I could retrain. Okay. And when I when it came time to cross train. Um, Substance abuse counseling was one of the jobs, ah, and yeah. so that's kind of how I got into that because I feel I felt like being a preacher now and counseling kind of went together. Okay, and so the preaching actually came before the addiction counseling, but once I started going through the training, I really saw how they were almost identical. Just uh, both of them. The task is trying to get people to see the need to change their lives, and so whether that's through addiction or someone needing salvation, uh, I really saw the parallel very easily. Yeah. Um, being in the military made it a little difficult, though, because, you know, you can't proselyte people. And so that's why spirituality became more of a subject matter mm-hmm. than Christianity. Right. Yeah. What What type of training did this, the military's training you to do substance abuse counseling? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are they training you to do that for military personnel? Right. Yeah. And so what a, what was their training program? Well, the consistent? initial uh, the initial training was was a uh, three month program. I actually left um, where I was in Texas and went to San Antonio, Texas. There was a three month long, just intensive training. So really, what it is, you go through counseling yourself because uh, what they were teaching us: if you haven't dealt with your issues, there's no way you can be able to help somebody right. else with theirs. So that three months really was you just really doing some real self examination and. And then after that, um, they sent it, met, um, Minneapolis, Minnesota is like one of the hubs for, 
for substance abuse counseling. So they would send us to all these different workshops and trainings. So they would they would spend top notch dollars to send us to some of the best institutes Interesting. in the nation yeah. getting us trained. There's a Hazleton in Hazel, that's right. what it was. Yeah, yeah. so so okay. we went to Hazel in All Minneapolis, right. and um, and again, I, I'm new to this, so they sent they sent us to Minneapolis, and uh, and again, understand, I'm I'm Michael Brooks from Central High School in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. They sent us to Hazel, and we're staying in the Omni downtown. <laughs> I'm yeah, like, it's a, I'm like in and in, in the military, you always had to share a room with somebody. Where this training, like you had a room all to yourself. I mean, I'm in a Top-notch hotel, going through this training on a daily basis. That was probably about a two- or three-week uh, training session. But that, that training was, uh, even to this day, it just blows my mind. Because this was probably 1985. Okay. Yeah. And back then is when they started talking about the super predator stuff. Oh. And one of the pictures I remember, even back, this was before people started wearing baggy pants. They showed a picture of what the next super predator is going to look like. And it was almost the identical of a black kid with sagging pants, hat turned backwards. They were even saying back then, this is what's coming. And I was like, wow. And thinking about it now, it was almost like, you know, so I'm a big conspiracy theorist. So (laughs) it was almost like they created this whole reality and then made it come true. Wow. And so, so that was, that was, uh, that was 85, 86, 87, so I was just going mm. back and forth between the training and, and the church. Well, Carl Johnson had just finished his doctor degree before he came um, to uh, Alaska, and um, his dissertation was something about why women should be able to preach. Okay. And that's what drove him out of Kansas City, because oh. back then, yeah, in that, the Black Baptist Church, right. There was nobody <laughs> open to women preaching, right. and that was where he just kind of grounded himself. Yeah. So when he came there, um, I agreed with him. Matter of fact, um, and this is another spiritual experience. The very first woman who started preaching up there, for some reason, God told me to go by her job and and tell her to just be obedient. I had no idea what that meant, but mm-hmm. I also knew what it took for me to be obedient to a- accept my call. And so I said, I don't know what this means. God just told me to come by and tell you. And about a week or so later, she got up and said she she felt like she's been called to the ministry. She was the very first one that started and started this journey of me again, fighting against this theology that we've been taught, um, and and have continued to fight against just stuff that just don't make sense since that Mm -hmm. day. You know. Yeah, it's an aside, but I remember when I was in one of the uh, African-American churches here in Kansas City, and one of my female pastors just walked right up behind the pulpit. <laughs> and Ooh, I, didn't even, I didn't even know that that yeah, was a big no-no. Man. Like, you just oh don't walk God. behind the pulpit. Just uh, That's yeah, like sacred. It's, it's and some it's, sacred spaces it's, in, the, uh, in the sanctuary. In the so I had church. to get educated yeah, real yeah. fast and then educate my... Yeah, so it was kind of... I mean, that whole thing was ironic. But what happened was, again, he became one of the professors at, at a seminary in Alaska, but when we would have our ministers meeting, he was teaching us the same classes that he was teaching seminary. Mm-hmm. So it was unofficial seminary training, but right. uh, I don't have no paperwork, but I was getting the same training um, that someone going to school was getting. Yeah, And so that's what helped us well. He actually trained us on how to study and how to break down the scripture and the exegesis and exegesis and all of that. He was doing that with us on a monthly basis just 
in the ministers meeting. So yeah. I really owe him a lot. He's probably the best teacher leader that I've had mm. in my life. Yeah. Excellent. So back to the substance abuse training that you mm-hmm. went through, was it was it 12-step based? I mean, was yeah. that a big part of yeah, it? Yeah, most of it was definitely 12-step uh, because of what we were doing, though, because we were expected to work with not only just the um, just the enlisted member or, or officer, but also they had a very big um, family plan. So their idea about Al-Anine, Alateen, all that was a real big piece of what okay. they wanted us to learn because they expected us to not only have individual counseling, but family counseling if, if it was needed. And most of the time it was. Right. Most, most of the time, if you got someone in the family that's got this kind of problem, everybody needs some help. Uh, most of them don't realize until you start talking to them because they're just thinking, well, we're just doing what we need to do to manage. Well, mm-hmm. But what you're doing to manage can be kind of addictive too. You know? exactly. So, right. so uh, all of that teaching just, again, and, and to convert that into Christianity and what we deal with on a regular basis, whether it's substance abuse or not, addiction is just addiction. And everybody mm-hmm. finds some kind of way uh, to deal with their emotions, to mm-hmm. deal with their their negative mentality, whatever that case may be. And so that's also where they also started teaching us about gambling and sex addiction and all others. They were like, no, addiction is just addiction. So we really need to change the description. You're not just drug and alcohol counselors. Mm-hmm. Now you need to be called addiction counselors because we're yeah. going to be dealing with a whole host of addictions, not just drugs and alcohol. But that's usually what gets people's attention, you know, because it's the drugs that alcohol. Well, I mean, some of these other ones can be just as damaging mm-hmm. and just as dangerous, right. you know, as the drugs and alcohol can be. Um, so that was the the holistic training really was what was beneficial to me. And again, I always saw the, the comparison between what we were trying to do with people who were addicted to people who were trying to get their lives changed through mm-hmm. Christianity as well. Right. I'm curious. Um, so... So like the substance addiction thing, so you've got your drugs, your alcohol, and mm-hmm. food, I think, is no a doubt. huge oh, no issue. You no know, I've, I've met with so many people oh, with food issues, yeah. body image issues, yeah. they're eating, they're purging, they're bulimia, anorexia, mm-hmm. all those things. Mm-hmm. But then you've got these behavioral addictions like you were just yeah. talking about, which could mm-hmm. be gambling or sex or yeah. shopping or social media all or any number yeah. of things yeah. that can like yeah. really take over our lives and enslave us yeah. in and some it, way or another. Mm-hmm. And even and even then what you pointed out about how family members who live around an addict mm-hmm. can themselves become addicted to behavior yeah, patterns that, behavior. Yeah. Yeah. that mm-hmm. Are unhealthy themselves. Yeah. Talk, press into yeah. that a little bit with the family context and that yeah. behavioral addiction so, around um, addiction. You know, it's it, like an addiction around addiction. Yeah. It's, and I it's, think the uh, I think the easy not I don't know if it's the easy way, but I think the way that it makes sense to me is um, how we were raised was you know what happens in his house stays in his house kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and I think that also what drives the mentality to continue keep perpetuating itself because nobody wants to talk about what's really going on. We know dad is coming home drinking a case of beer every night and passing out, but there's no way I'm going to talk about that to my neighbor down the street. So we just learn how to manage it. So we just clean up the cans. You know, we uh, clean up the vomit or clean up where because we got to make sure we keep this image that we have this mm-hmm. family unit and that becomes life mm-hmm. and so keeping up this facade that things are okay 
becomes just as addictive as the person who's in, in the addiction themselves. Um, the other piece that was always interesting was, you know, how hereditary this thing can be. So when it comes to drug addiction, I, I'm not sure with the other emotional addictions it can be the same way. But I can imagine if, it, if you're dealing with the mind and what, how people process pain, if I, if I learn how to process pain by watching my parents and how they process pain, I'm going to end up doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, whether people want to or not, a lot of times they end up being just like their parents because that's, that's their yeah. reality and that's what they know. Yeah, so how, how would – did you have success? I'm sure you had some in mm-hmm. terms of helping family members who weren't substance abusers mm-hmm. but who were into an unhealthy addictive behavioral pattern around yeah. – an addict. How, how did you help them come to grips with that? Because I've, yeah, I've noticed that's a hard one. Like it really, is. they just think the addict is the whole problem. Yeah, and even though they've lived around it for a, a bunch of years, they mm-hmm. don't think that they yeah. might be part of the problem. Yeah. Well, I think some of the, I, I think a couple. When I think of some of the success successes, uh, some of the greatest ones were when we had to do interventions. And in the midst of intervention, what every family member has to do is you have to write down how this really has affected you. You need to be able to tell your father, your husband, whoever it is, what has happened and how it's made you feel. And once you get them to start talking about how stuff has really made them feel and how they really have, then they start looking at themselves and not just the person. Then they begin to see how you know I'm just as messed up as this person yeah. is, and so and and that's the reality with every situation. If you can get people to just look at their own stuff, you know, and just, that's counseling in a nutshell. I'm trying my best to just get you to look at your stuff, and then you decide whether or not it's good or not. I'm not. That's not my job. You decide whether or not this is your best life. Yeah. You decide whether or not this is the most healthy position for you to be in. And so once they start looking at their behaviors and even how they've even helped and aided, uh, and mothers and sons are some of the, some of the worst ones to kind of get through. Oh, my imagine. God. Especially yeah. when it comes to drug addiction. The father will cut them off in a heartbeat. <laughs> but that mother... <laughs> she will, she will, she will go to the bank and get another two hundred dollars. She'll sell some yeah. jewelry. She'll and and I've seen marriages almost go to pieces because the father's like, if you give him one more dime, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it happen. You know, we work through some stuff sometimes, but actually, I've seen some marriages break up because yeah. one parent wanted to say, okay, tough love. And the other one's like, no, that's my son. And as long as he's alive, he's going to be my son. Right. And this, and that's the that's kind of the the tension when it comes to counseling, because you really do want people to own where they are. Mm-hmm. But even when you see that where they are is not healthy, it's not your job to change that. Right. That's just where they are, and until they can see it for themselves, right. there's not a whole lot you can be able to do. And so, as much as you can keep putting the mirror up, as much as you can keep repeating to them some mm-hmm. unhealthy stuff that's going on. Until they come to the conclusion, I need to change and I'm part of the problem, nothing's really going to change. And so although we've seen in the military, most of the people I saw were not coming to me because they had this Mm -hmm. eye-opening experience. They were like, you know, I got the DBI, I'm about to lose my job, so just tell me what I need to do. So, so, you know, they had some motivation behind them Mm -hmm. wouldn't always. But once they got in there and, and started working with us and started seeing what was going on, they came to the conclusion a lot of times, okay, I probably really didn't either. And I and I mean, I've had guys sit across from me and stare at me for a whole hour. 
I'm here because they told me I need to be here. You seen uh, Marshawn Litch at the at the press conference for News Plan for Seattle? <laughs> <laughs> that was I've seen that over. I'm here so I don't get fined. I'm here because they told me to be here. Mm-hmm. So let me right. know when 59 minutes is up, and I'll see you next week. Kind of thing. I'm like, yeah. And I just have to record that. But until that person really is ready. Yeah. There's not a whole lot anybody's going to be able to do. Isn't that right? And it can be very painful for the family because everybody in the family, and usually the addict or the alcoholic, is the last person to have this eye-opening experience. Mm-hmm. Everybody else around them knows. You done lost jobs. You done lost your family. You done lost your kids. Nobody wants to be bothered with you. But yeah. you're saying everything is just fine. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, the addict themselves usually is the last person to really come to grips where things really need yeah. to change. And a lot of times that's usually... Uh, forced by some outside matter. I think some so. Some child that says something, some yeah. wife or husband yeah. that says, I've had some mother or father that says, look, if you don't change, I'm going to have to cut you off. I mean, it really does take some you yeah. know, real life-changing event for some people right. to really decide they're going to change. Yeah, and painful. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. my my own example mm-hmm. of, of uh, you know, having this meltdown, mm-hmm. Losing my job, right. my marriage, those kind of things, and and I I didn't have a long history of substance abuse. Right. Uh, substance mm-hmm. abuse, it was fairly, uh, you know, fairly short lived, right. but it took me down very quickly. Yeah, and and so and and honestly, even after I uh, came out of rehab, it was still like. I, I didn't. You don't want to admit that That's something beats yeah. you. Yeah. Like I, yeah. like I'm not an yeah. alcoholic, or I'm not this, or I'm not that, and yeah. I can handle yeah. this. And yeah. and I think that's why that that first step is so important mm-hmm. in in the twelve steps because it is a surrender. Exactly. It, it and it's brutal honesty with mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. And it, then it's this like. You know, and I'd I had surrender. I'd been a pastor for forty years. Right, I'd right, made right. a surrender. I did right, drugs right, in right. high school, okay, and then okay. came to Christ, yeah. and then didn't do any of that stuff. Right. And then all yeah. of a sudden, I have this second yeah. phase, yeah. and I'm like going, "Crap! Yeah. I got to admit yeah. that this thing beat me." You know, in yeah. some way or another, yeah. and, and I think that's and the yeah. surrender and give and, up again, and, and that's and, the tension. I don't, especially when it comes to men. We don't ever want to admit that anything yeah. is more powerful than we exactly. are. Exactly. <laughs> You know, and that's why I think the steps are so important because who can't admit Mm -hmm. that God is more powerful than them? So, so that's it's not an out because I think it's reality, Mm -hmm. but I don't think again, it's till people actually go through counsel and actually go through the process, they process it that way. Because I'm, I know God is big and I know He's in control, but I got you know, I got got this, I can, I can can handle this, and uh, it's not until again, and sad reality is usually it takes some real major incident Mm -hmm. for people to wake up, and and I. Every now and then, there'll be somebody just decides I want to change. But most of the time, yeah. change usually comes after some pain, and and me deciding, okay, I, I don't want so. to feel this pain anymore. Exactly. So I'm going to do something different. Yeah. And everybody has a different bottom. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, yeah. I I was just talking to a yeah. guy the other night, and I could tell he wasn't it. Like he he should have mm-hmm. been at his bottom. Like yeah. you're. Yeah. You have no options left. He's sitting in the detox center. Man. And then I yeah. can still hear it in his brain that he's still like Trying not there. Trying to figure yet. it out. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, dude. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot know? of time for people that have, that have this long experience with addiction, um, 
the reality of not being there is scary. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know anything. All I've been is an addict or drug addict, whatever the issue is. Yeah. It's all I've known. So now you're trying to take away the right. one thing that really has been my crutch. Because what people don't understand about addiction is that the things that we get addicted to work. You know, if it's covering up some pain, it's covering up some deficiency that I have, and it, and it works. So if I'm mad and I don't feel like being mad, I go take a drink, and guess what? I'm not mad no more. <laughs> you know, if I'm feeling this pain and I want to numb it, and I want to numb it by smoking some marijuana, well, guess what? You know, so that's the other piece about, uh, and what I loved about the counseling and the counseling encouraged us to do, was just be real with people and just stop telling people that, you know, Alcohol is bad. Alcohol is bad for some people, but if alcohol is what you're using to numb yourself and that's your goal, it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that needs to be a goal, but if that's the goal, so we need to stop telling people that it's just bad and it's not going to help you. Well, okay, it's it's helping because mm-hmm. if I don't want to feel what I'm feeling, if yeah. I go and and we live in a society now, and and your story really makes it pointed that we give people stuff to change the way they feel. Mm-hmm. Now, alcohol is legal. Marijuana may not be, but the effect is still the same. I'm trying to change how I feel. Mm-hmm. And if what I'm doing changes how I feel and it works, mm-hmm. then what I'm going to do is yeah. keep on changing how I feel. Yeah, Because I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be anxious. Yeah. I don't want to be whatever it is I'm trying to cover yeah. up. And For me, that, I didn't. I got tired of staying up all night long. Like yeah. I couldn't sleep. So, so it's it, like it I works. like it worked for a little while. I mean, it didn't work great, right? But it worked. <laughs> you know? And, and I, always, that's why I ended up going to the psychiatrist and getting on Xanax because, like, I thought, well, this alcohol isn't a good long term strategy. Right, right, right. And so right. then I then I, I got on Xanax, stronger. and then yeah. and then that worked for great for a while, and then it didn't. And then I, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I don't think our society is ever going to admit just how we call some addictions just by how we prescribe medicine. It's interesting, how, isn't it? Um, and because if we do it, and you know, here comes this conspiracy theory again, but you know, we're going to, if we stop prescribing this medicine, we're going to stop making money. <laughs> the, the pharmacist's not going to make money. The drug makers are not going to make money. And so, yeah, we really want to change, but I'm not sure we really want to change because well, when you start affecting people's bottom line, yeah, <laughs> some other stuff comes into play. Yeah. Gosh, though, that brings us to, man, that's such a big bag of worms oh, and it's like crazy, yeah. The, yeah. the whole... How we treat everything with yeah. prescription drugs. Something. Yeah, yeah. We, got, we got everything. You can got a pill. Ooh, that's a whole nother yeah. issue. Yeah. So it's it's obvious to me just hearing you know this 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 journey into recovery or work in the military how that translated right into your pastoral work. Oh yeah. So like, no just share a little bit about coming to Kansas City. Okay. Your work in Kansas City with recovery, and then and then jumping into the pastor world. Just give okay. us give us that little piece. So I was in um, still living in Wichita Falls, Texas, where I got out of the military. But I started pastoring in a little town called Altus, Oklahoma, uh, Macedonia Baptist Church. I never forget it. First oh, wow. church I pastored. Um, and tell you the truth, when I first started coming back to Kansas City, you know, I knew I was going to come back. 
I actually went to Macedonia. Yes. Because I thought, you know, I got to find some place I'm going to go to church. And went to uh, John's, one of John's Bible study at the old building. I don't think he knew I was. I was sitting back in the back. I just came to check him out. Said, so John Brooks was the pastor, was the pastor then? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I just went to the one of the Bible studies. I said, his name's Brooks, so he can't be such a bad guy. Right? So, <laughs> so, right. so I just sat back in the back. But I knew I was coming back, and I knew I wanted to... I needed to attend somebody's church. And mm-hmm. So I was hearing great things about what he was doing and what was happening. So I just went and checked it out. Um, but anyway, I was in in, in Texas, um, and this was 80, 96, 97 when this first started, just feeling I needed to come back to Kansas City. And what uh, was happening then was, if you remember, the reality show Cops started coming on. Mm-hmm. And almost every week, Cops was in Kansas City. And I actually saw them arresting some of my classmates. Oh, really? And when I would come wow. back to Kansas City, it was because one of my classmates had got murdered, one of my classmates had got killed. It wow. was, and so uh, I would, and I was in Texas. I was only like seven hour drive, so I would come back periodically, and so I kind of knew what was going on. Um, and God just put this burden on me to to uh, to leave there and come back with no plan whatsoever. So I was here on vacation during Labor Day weekend. Uh, so. So health services uh, was having a job fair, and one of the jobs was a drug and alcohol counselor. I said, well, let me just run by here and talk to these people. And uh, so I talked to a lady. Uh, she said, sure, uh, send me your resume. So I sent her a resume. We're sitting there talking, and she goes, well, you know, we'd love to hire you. I said, oh, wait. <laughs> I mean, I got a job and a church, <laughs> and this, this is the first of September. I said, I'm going to need at least... 60 days to go get stuff my stuff together. I just knew that was going to be a deal breaker. She says, take as much time as you need. We will hold the job for you until you go take care of your stuff. And so that's what happened. I went back, resigned from the job that I had. I was actually uh, back working for the military, uh, working their drug testing program that I kind of had created before I got out of the military. So it was kind of ironic. I was right back in the same office I was in uh, while I was in the military. Had one of the best jobs I ever had. Had been at the church line four years, and so the church is kind of shifting. I'm trying, starting to be the pastor, if you know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and and was really in a good situation, you know, financially, spiritually, you know, everything was kind of. And then God was like, you know, go back to Kansas City. And literally, I promise you, I told my dad. He's one of the few people I talked to uh, about it, and his response to me was. Why would you want to do something like that? <laughs> I was like, it almost crushed me. I was like, Dad, uh, I'm like, Dad, I'm trying to come home. Yeah. He said, I get that, but my, you got you got a lot going on for you right, right where you are. Why would you want to come back here and, yeah. and kind of start all? I said, I don't want to, but I really feel this is what God's leading me to do. So, um, so sure enough, I went back, told the job I had, gave them a two week notice, told the church, and it was almost it was four years to the day. Matter of fact, the day I my last Sunday was. Four years to the day that I started passing church, mm-hmm. so I told the church um, that was I was moving back to Kansas City, but I would keep coming back <clears throat> to pastor until they and help them with the transition to find mm-hmm. another pastor. So for the first probably two months, I was here working all week. I get on a plane, fly to Oklahoma City on Friday night, oh, wow. be there for the weekend, uh, preach on Sunday, get on a yeah. plane back, come back, and I did that for. About a month, so I mm-hmm. came back in October, so I, and and you know offered a few candidates, but once I realized they kind of had it, I kind of resigned. So um, that was that was interesting. It was yeah. it was uh, 
But I didn't want to just leave them, you know, high and dry. It was a real small town. wasn't a whole lot of preachers around. So it really was mm-hmm. going to be a task trying to find the next right. pastor. So I didn't just want to leave them hanging like that. So I went back, commuted back and forth for about a whole month and uh, started working in Swope and uh, worked there in the homeless department. So the counseling I was doing was actually helping uh, homeless individuals who also had dual diagnosis of some type of mental health problem, but also drug and alcohol too. Okay. And so uh, being involved with that population just changed my whole mentality about you know Kansas City as well. Mm-hmm. So I understand I'm coming back because the murder rate is skyrocketing. I got friends that are being killed. Uh, we're looking at cops and cops is making Kansas City's making national news because <laughs> of the drug trade and what's going on. When I come back here, the population of people I start working with are the homeless people. And so I'm, I'm, this is my other mentality that, that really has helped me. I love working with drug addicts and alcoholics. It is, it is who I am. I'll probably be count, a counselor to the day I die. Mm. Um, it, it, it translated to the church. But I tell you too, Fred, on some days, I'd rather deal with drug addicts and alcoholics than some of these church folks, man. <laughs> Don't get us too off track, but, <laughs> I, know, but no, just... Tease that out just so, a so little the, bit. And the, and the piece of it is, when you're, dealing with, when you're dealing with people that have addiction, you don't have to convince them they have a problem. Mm-hmm. Most of them, whether they're ready to change or not, they know right. that it's a problem. Right. When it comes to people in the church, I'm not sure we're so quick to say, hey, I got a, I got yeah. an issue over here. And so you got to almost convince them. Right. You know, you yeah. know that anger you got and that disposition you have mm-hmm. and the way you talk to people exactly. and, and your excuses, this is how I've always been. That ain't, no, not not when you've been changed and not when you've been born again. That's that Some of that should change a little bit. So trying yeah. to convince people who, again, aren't doing drugs, aren't doing alcohol, all the bad sins that we... Right. <laughs> trying to convince them you still have some character flaws, yeah. you have some stuff you really need to work on mm-hmm. is like pulling teeth, yeah. you know. But dealing with people that know they have a problem. I, these people getting high every day know they're getting high every day. You don't have to tell me. You know? So when they come to me, okay, yeah. you know, Mr. Brooks, I know I got a problem. I, you don't have to tell me I got a problem. Can you help me? So people that are asking for help are a whole lot easier to work with than people you're trying to convince they need some help. And yeah. so that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. I, I agree. I So I've been in the recovery community mm-hmm. over a year now. Yeah. I probably know now by name two to three hundred people mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the recovery community. And I I would say this, it's been refreshing. Oh yeah. Which sounds crazy because no, it would have been the last no, I, I didn't totally want to understand. I didn't want to end up in that community yeah. under the circumstances that I ended up there. But I would say that it was incredibly yeah. refreshing the kind of brutal honesty that you run into with people exactly. that are in recovery. Exactly. And I was like, this is yeah. this is good. You know, yeah. this is what the church needs, kind of thing. Yeah. And so that's what I learned in dealing with them week in, week out, having group sessions as well. And I love group settings because in the group settings, people kind of challenge each other on their stuff. They expect me to challenge them. But when a group and somebody, one of your peers says, that's some BS. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. Yeah. Kinda, okay. Yeah. I, ain't, I didn't expect that. Fun. And, yeah. and so I've seen actually people go through treatment, end up being some of the best counselors that you'll ever experience yeah. because you can't pull nothing over on them. You're right. I said, so when I became a counselor, it was a joke to me. I'm like, okay, guy, you're going to take me who you should be a drug addict and alcoholic. And you're going to make me a counselor. You got a, you got a real funny way of mm-hmm. doing stuff. But it's like, no, 
you know what you're talking about because you've been there. Yeah. So so you can't be in front of me with glassy eyes and telling me you're okay. So <laughs> yeah. So um, so that's that. That's the again. I think the easier piece, the easier diagnosis mm-hmm. of those people who already know. Okay, you yeah. know, yeah, I'm, yeah. I probably I like that. Well, let's let's just chat a bit about uh, your your work in the church and during this COVID period right now. Mm-hmm. So I just looked at some statistics from uh, CDC and their surveys that they've done here in the last few months mm-hmm. with. You know, across the nation, and again, right. we might state addiction mm-hmm. cuts across economic lines, oh, yeah. cuts oh, across no racial lines. It it impacts anybody anywhere. It is no not a respecter of persons, right? No doubt. But let's just say uh, the CDC's search results or survey results has showed that about, and you just take like alcohol mm-hmm. or drugs mm-hmm. or suicide ideation or depression or anxiety or any of these mental health issues that most of those categories of addiction and mental health issues have skyrocketed in the yeah. last 10 months no somewhere between 26 and 40% yeah. increases in all of these mm. areas yeah. curious as a pastor as you've been pastoring through this time have you have you observed that that in your in the city or in your congregation yeah. well, or well, I know? just uh, just overall, just in general, mm-hmm. I, I've seen it just because I'm I'm aware of how those problems kind of fester. Mm-hmm. So somebody that was already depressed, somebody that was already having, uh, and I talked to, I still have a very good friend that's still a counselor over at Swope that I talk to a lot of times uh, to kind of get a perspective on what's going on because my real concern was again for those people who already have some issues Mm -hmm. and now you're sheltered in place and you can't go anywhere and so people that already had mental health issues going on um, who now can't get their prescriptions filled because they can't I mean everything was kind of in a tailspin for the first couple of months Uh, I think it's balancing out now but but that whole sheltering in place I think messed a whole lot of people up who normally were kind of normal but that being in home and not being able to go out and not being able yeah. to, that I could see how who's, if somebody already had some issues before, that kind of sheltered in place and not being be able to interact with people would make mm-hmm. it even worse. Uh, for some people who, um, and what I've seen in churches, for some people who really, church was their outlet, mm-hmm. you know, so when they come to church, they're the ones that are that are huggers and right. speaking to everybody. Right. And, those individuals are really struggling because um, they were like, "I just need to touch somebody. I just need to. I just need a. I just need a hug." You know. And so, yeah, with the congregation, I could see, especially with some of our seniors, who, again, they're the ones that are always over friendly and, and know everybody's names. And yeah. well, now you know we're not meeting, so I could see. So what I the only thing that that we could do was just make sure we made the social media contact as as robust as possible. Right. So. So we were, uh, it got to be a little much, but we were actually doing meetings with every group almost every week. Mm-hmm. And so that, that got to be a little bit much, a little bit much. So we switched it after about three months to, to every other week and then went back to once a month. Yeah. But I think it was needed early on because people were like, you know, I'm just glad we did this. Even though I can't touch you, I was just good to see your face. Yeah. We were on Zoom and some of the people were just calling in just so they could hear somebody else's voice. I right. mean, so... Uh, I'm hoping most churches thought the same thing and felt the need to keep that connection going on. Uh, and then we were already in the transition, so um, 
it made even that much more important to stay connected with our folks because we're still in the process of trying to move into a new building. And so mm-hmm. keeping that connection and letting people know where we are at that process was important as well. But yeah, I really did see that uh, people that were already dealing with some depression and dealing with some anxiety. Um, and so I made sure, ask our ministers and our deacons to make sure that they're checking on our folk on a regular basis. Because again, the weekly meetings get, did get to be a bit much. Yeah. But if we have somebody, again, that's just assigned to calling folks on a regular basis, right. I think that just a phone call, you'd yeah, be surprised what that does for some that's people. Great. Just know somebody's thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the African-American church is, is you get a lot more hugs there oh, yeah. than you do oh, yeah. in the white church <laughs> in America. And I, I, I've yeah. said it many times, yeah. I miss my hugs because yeah. I've been, yeah. you know, I've been yeah. in the African-American yeah, church for over culture. a year. And, and, so. and I can, yeah, I can imagine with people who really need yeah. that, that can be a real change. Yeah. It's interesting. That, uh, so you think about underlying conditions mm-hmm. and COVID and how these underlying physical yeah. health issues yeah. enhanced uh, and made people vulnerable to COVID. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. But then we could say the same thing about the underlying addiction so. or mental health issues that so. made people more yeah. susceptible to the re- the the results of COVID. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, that was a challenging challenging thing for mental health workers yeah. and for and all of us yeah. who work in communities with mm-hmm. people. And I know, I know the um, a lot of the twelve step halls around Kansas City. You know, would go to the mayors and whatnot, mm-hmm. and they a lot of the mayors determined that these were yeah, essential, essential yeah. because they yeah. knew people's sobriety and yeah. and that sobriety could yeah. be life and death for some oh, people. No doubt about it. And, and so, yeah. and so, and uh, Ruthie Workworth is the is the counselor that's still there. We had the same conversation about um, those individuals who had mental health issues, mm-hmm. schizophrenia, depression, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And you can just imagine that that stuff gets you know multiplied a hundred yeah, times. You bet. When I'm not going to the group settings anymore, I'm not able to get, because a lot of pharmacies and stuff weren't doing a whole lot of work. They shut everything down. So right. if somebody's prescription had just ran out at that at the wrong time, mm-hmm. it was taking them a couple of weeks just to get the medication back. And yep. so um, she said it was it was a big step. Those first, that March to June time period was real critical. Okay. For, I think, once we got past June, they started opening things up yep. a little bit more. It got easier. But those first two months or so were real critical for a lot of people, right. I think. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe just wrap this up with some some counsel or advice that you might give to somebody that's listening right now, sure. and they they might be concerned about their own issues. Like mm-hmm. they might be thinking, "Am I an addict? Am yeah. I am I slipping into trouble?" Or they may have a son or a daughter yeah. or a spouse or a partner mm-hmm. or a friend who they are extremely worried about and yeah. they're 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 concerned how yeah. a lot of times people want to how can you reach out cuz you already stated like you, there's not a whole lot you can do if that mm-hmm. person isn't ready to change yeah. on the other hand what can we do yeah so so twofold i think i think everybody has at least one or two people when they talk to them, they listen. So in a lot of instances, it's going to be that mother. It's going to be that spouse. could be a child. But you have to kind of evaluate what their relationship is like. Is this or is that person you're trying to help really somebody's going to listen to you and listen to your point of view? If it's you just at a distance kind of concerned about them, and that, you may not be the best person to approach them as far as making some changes. Uh, but most... Uh, I would say to mothers, you probably have more power than you think you have. 
most kids don't want to disappoint their mothers, even when it comes to their sons. Daughters and fathers, kind of the same thing. But I, I really think, again, everybody has one or two people that can really get to them. And if you can find them. So as a counselor, I was always trying to figure out, and it, even as the client, before it got to that point, who's the one person in your family you would listen to? Yeah. If they good. ask you to do something, you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it was a grandmother. It was, you know, an older person. But mm-hmm. now the family dynamics are changing. Some of the older people are moving off the scene and passing away. Now we're, I think a lot of families are grappling with who is that matriarch now? Who is mm-hmm. that patriarch that everybody respects? And when something goes down, they're going to listen to them. So that's a real big change, especially in the African-American culture I, that I've seen, that, that the whole respecting of your elders kind of thing is not what, not what it used to be. So, so I would say that if you're concerned about somebody, um, evaluate the relationship before you try to intervene because mm-hmm. they could – Accuse you just being nosy here right. in the business. Right. Um, if you do have the relationship, though, use everything that you have, everything in your power to try to get them to get some help. Uh, remembering also, though, if they choose not to, that's still their choice. Right. I'm a real huge proponent on letting people choose where they are and, and not taking personal responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. If you know they need to get help, and you've offered the help, and you've kind of guided them in the right direction, and they choose not to, you can't take responsibility for that. Yeah, that's you've a huge one, though, bad. isn't it? Oh, yeah. Being a mom with a kid, and you know how that works. It's, it's always like easy. You, just, to, you, you can know, hold it hard. It's for some people, that's so hard. And one of the things that happens a lot is that addict knows how to play that against you. You bet. You know, you bet. so, you know, you're supposed to be my mother, and you're not going to help me. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm your mother, but no, I'm, I'm not going to help you because I'm making the problem worse. I'm not mm-hmm. helping you get any better. Right. And just know that, that if you're constantly contributing to their addiction, you may not be the cause of it, but you certainly are codependent mm-hmm. in your um, you know, helping them right. uh, to stay where they are. So if you really want to change, and, and a lot of times it's hard. It's hard for the person that has to do it as well as hard for the addict that has to deal with it. Uh, but you got to weigh whether or not, you know, especially if it's a life or death situation. Right. Because with some of these drugs and alcohol, it, it is that. Exactly. Yeah. you got to choose, okay, do you want, yep. would you rather have go visit your child in jail or would you rather have to go visit a cemetery on Memorial yeah. Day? Exactly. That, it comes down to that, and I think that's when it comes when it comes to counseling. That's really the the bottom line: is yeah. do you want to live? Right. Because you know, if you don't change, yeah. Yeah. this stuff is going to kill I you. I agree, and yeah. uh, that's how and serious it is. Yeah, it, yep. it, it really is. Yep. And so, so that's uh, uh, the severity kind of wa- waivers. You have to decide, like you were saying, somebody mm-hmm. has not been doing it very long. It's gonna have. It's gonna may take longer for mm-hmm. them to get to their bottom, yeah. um, and my bottom's not gonna be everybody else's. You know, um, it, it may take more than just a loved one passing away mm-hmm. for me to wake for yeah. somebody else to wake up. Yeah. Um, but I, but I think all that's still personal too. I mean that I can't. And if the church could change anything, I wish we could change how we kind of force people to get to the truth. That if you don't see it my way, you're just wrong. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not necessarily just seeing it your way. If I'm not there, if my heart hadn't been changed, 
Because I, like I told yeah. you, when I first got in church, I didn't go because I had this great experience with Jesus. But as I stayed and as I studied and as I started praying and reading the Bible, that's that's what changed yeah. me. It wasn't necessarily walking down the aisle and chasing, shaking, shaking the preacher's hand. Right. I knew I needed to change, but that process of changing still takes some time. Yeah. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I would encourage people to, even if the change starts. And, and this is another sobering reality. Uh, relapse is a part of the process. Right. I'm not saying it has to happen, but if it does happen, it's not a death sentence. If it does happen, it's not the end of the world. And so, if you have somebody that's trying and they slip up, don't don't let that be the reason. Right. right? And if they if they admit they're slipping up and they want to get back on track, encourage them to do that. Right. Don't encourage them to keep doing it, but messing up and falling short, you know, is part yeah, of the process. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I've watched that many many times. Well. I, I think no matter how low somebody goes, if they want to live and they want to change, yeah. then we can provide a, a net of resources. Our hand can be there yeah. if they reach out, yeah. right? No doubt about it. So we want to be there if they mm-hmm. reach out. If they if they hit that point, then there are resources. Oh, no and, doubt about it. And we have, we no have some great it. ones in the city. I'll be, I just interviewed... Uh, the CEO of Welcome House okay. uh, just yeah. just a week ago, and so there are resources for no people, no matter how low they go. No doubt about it. There are yeah. there are ways. There are people. There are there are people that are going to love them. That are going to yeah. care for them. They're not alone. So I do think we, as communities, we can we can be that sort of resource that net that can literally save people's lives. In and, these I, my, and my prayer is that, that even the church community would be more open to that. Yeah. You know, imagine yeah. if if every ministry had their own 12-step group. And again, you gotta you gotta deal with the whole 12-step piece. But if you can get past your little, you know, right. shallow theology, you can, right. it, it helped me because the fact they wouldn't let us talk about Christianity Forced me to teach spirituality. Exactly. And so, yeah. and, and I found out that that was a lot more, you know, liberating than just right. preaching, uh, you know, Christianity in the first place. So, yeah. spirituality is much more, certainly much more broad. And if you really are concerned about people getting help, them not believing in your God is not going to, you know, change your world either. If yeah, they have, have something to... they believe in. Exactly. It doesn't have to be a conversation. Stopper at that at point, or 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 stop them in the process. Yeah, because I I did the same thing when I taught spirituality and recovery at, at Welcome House. Mm-hmm. I didn't use Jesus or the yeah. Bible, but I watched people's yeah. lives really yeah. open up to new new realities. Yeah. Yeah. The spirituality piece oh, to no this doubt. thing was no huge. About so. and, I, and I think you know, even when it comes to Christianity, I still think even Christians miss spirituality. That I think we're, so. We're yeah. practicing a religion. But I'm not sure we really are pushing this relationship, mm-hmm. and that's what spirituality is about. Your relationship with God, whoever you mm-hmm. choose to call, call God, mm-hmm. whoever is your high power, if it's working for you, if it's keeping you sober, okay, I'm I'm glad about it. If it's, if it's changing your life, yeah, I'm I'm glad about it. And if yeah. there is an opportunity for me to talk to you about Christ, that's fine. But if not, as long as you're staying clean, as long as you're staying sober, as long as your life is going in the direction you want to go in. Who am I to say that there's something wrong with that? Well, it certainly opens 
the whole program up to everybody. Oh, no doubt. And it, and be, so many people would be out if it if you're oh God, forcing yeah. Jesus yeah. or the Bible on yeah. or something like no that. Doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Well, thank you, Michael, for being here. Oh, and thanks right for now. this conversation. I know that people are tuning in and listening, yeah. and and uh, I know that they've they've enjoyed hearing your story. Yeah. No but doubt. also, there's been some great insights into recovery, spirituality, and yeah. that whole process. So. Thanks for being here. I want to thank all of you who've tuned in to this uh, edition of Spirituality Adventures. And thanks. I'll see you next time. God bless you.